Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Now look at my front butt. Yeah, I think he he directed one of those 
either romancing the stone or jewel of the Nile. I think it, yeah, it was didn't Robert Zemeckis direct uh, Romancing the Stone? I can't remember. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah. yeah, this one is fun. I mean, you got Robert Forster, uh, Henry Silva yeah. is a big game hummer in the middle of the city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And I There's think, no way to watch I mean, Alligator and not come out with a big grin on your face. Right? And it kind of, I mean, at 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 the age that we were, when it came out, it kind of feeds into that whole, I mean, uh, anyone who's familiar with an urban legend knows that that was one of the things that you used to hear about all the time with urban legends back in the late 70s, early 80s was, oh, people are buying pet alligators, which I guess you buy into when you're a kid. But, yeah, people are buying baby alligators and then when they get tired of them they're flushing them down the toilet and then the next thing you know they're in the sewer and you know it, it it's a danger to everyone in the in the city um i don't i don't really understand how that urban legend got so much traction because looking back on it as a no, as a middle school yes there were the alligator farms down Florida where he goes to see a guy live wrestling. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. And they would I sell think... baby alligators. It was a wild, you know. Now they run. <laughs> oh, my God. And not because, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my. Animal abuse, selling and they were getting home, and after they get so big, the parents would flush it. Right. Well, that's the we thing went about to... urban legends. They start, they got to have an ounce of truth in the middle of all the bullshit. I went to Florida uh, last year for Christmas, uh, or Thanksgiving, rather, but I went down to Florida to visit some family down there, and uh, they they actually now they breed a smaller version of uh, well I don't know if they're alligators or crocodiles but they they breed a smaller version of them now intentionally so that they don't have so they don't get big enough for them to be you know unmanageable but that doesn't mean that you couldn't flush one down the toilet. They're, they're definitely, I don't know, depend on how big your toilet was, I guess, but, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, I, I, I'm fairly certain that was the, that was where the origin of this film came from. Somebody reading about alligators getting flushed down the toilet in urban areas and then uh, growing out of control yeah. in the sewers, but yeah. I will yeah. agree with you. One of the bullshit part is they survive. Yeah. And right. they're growing, in, you know. Yeah, right. Well, you and never you know. know movies, what... man, you'll see things like uh, the name of the sewer worker that gets killed is the same one as one in uh, the honeymoon. Yep. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, obviously and not. You have to get a really good print or the Blu-ray. But on one of the walls in the sewer, it says Harry Lime Liz. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So now we're talking about uh, shared universes. Uh, you know, we've talked about that in the past with uh, with other uh, directors. So, so was this uh, Lucas Teague's uh, early attempt at starting a shared universe? So, you know. Hey, oh, screw you. <laughs> screw you, Tarantino. Screw you, Marvel. Lewis Teague beat you to it a long time ago. Moving <laughs> uh, on, what was the first Ken Russell film you ever seen? Probably the same as me. Uh, I don't know. I we When we wrote our article for our blog before we ever did the uh, – before we ever started with the podcast, I think I mentioned that the first Ken Russell film I remember seeing was uh, Tommy. But I think that was only because at that point I was aware enough of direct to realize that, you know, I as much of a film fanatic as I am now, it's kind of funny for me to think back on my younger years and think that, I, I didn't realize that, oh, every movie is not made by a separate director. Some, you know, people have whole careers as directors. But yeah. having said that, I will say probably the first Ken Russell film I ever actually saw, and I'm sure it's the one you're about to talk about, since we are talking about the 1980s, was Altered States. And that's because HBO was dying for products. And if you got a movie on HBO, they would show the hell out of it. Yep. And all the states, they showed the hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you and I have talked extensively about Ken Russell. I mean, we wrote two separate articles about him for for our blog, and we've talked about him in past shows, but... Altered States really does lay the groundwork for almost everything that Ken Russell became famous for in the 80s. It's got, you know, the bizarre hallucinogenic imagery. It's got, not that he hadn't dipped his toe in this before with earlier films, but, I mean, Altered States really goes all in on the religious imagery, uh, just like the nightmarish hallucinations. And I think, of course, that was set up perfectly by the overall uh, story arc, which for anyone who hasn't seen the film involves uh, characters who are uh, indulging in uh, isolation. uh, What do they call them? Isolation tanks. uh, But there's another term I'm trying to come up with off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, you've got it pretty much. It's the isolation thing. Yeah, they go Sensory into the isolation thing. Yeah, and they and then, uh, but it has it does have some uh, elements in common with, and I I can't help but draw a parallel here between a film that would come out a few years later 
which was David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. Even though there's no uh, there's no DNA altering elements in uh, in altered states, although that does uh, that is eventually uh, what. What seems to happen is that uh, the main character seems to be altered by his experience in the isolation tank and the hallucinations that he has seems to drive him back to a primitive uh, state of being. It doesn't have like yeah. the fly gets in the 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 you know the the transformation tank like uh, or the transform you know the the teleporter no like, he's with stupid balls yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. So I've done a lot of drugs. I've done a lot of drugs in my life. I've never done enough uh, to uh, to think that I was, you know, re- regressing back to caveman times or whatever. But hey, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't doing the right drugs. Yeah. If we wanted to see <laughs> what would happen if man regressed to caveman times, we had to wait the nineties. And when Hootie and the Blowfish come out, and we got frat boy culture or bro culture. Now that's some yeah. caveman shit, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, we we had to wait we had to wait fifteen twenty more years before we finally regressed to the actual caveman uh, archetype that uh, William Hurt was searching for in altered states. Yeah. <laughs> and the best thing about altered states is when we actually started getting hold of the other Ken Russell films, we're like, I love this movie, but it's lesser Ken Russell. Oh my God, this guy is good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and, you and I, like I said, we wrote two separate articles about Ken Russell after he passed away, and we talk about him all the time. He is just, uh, yeah, anybody, anyone who's who who listens to our show, and I can't believe that there is anyone who listens to our show who hasn't already, but watch yourself some fucking Ken Russell, man. That guy was on a whole nother level. Like, I don't know what, I, I don't know what was going through his mind, but he made some crazy friggin' movies in his career. Just, uh, and you know, like he is one of those directors whose vision was so singular and whose ideas were so out there that, I mean, we talk about directors all the time who had to go begging for money to make movies. Uh, Ken Russell came along at just the right time where there were so many musicians and weirdo artists and visionaries that had these ideas for movies that they went looking for Ken Russell because they were like, this is the guy that can make this happen. If anyone can make this happen, it's Ken Russell. He's, he's right there on the same level of either sanity, insanity, or drug abuse as I'm at. So let's go find this guy and get this movie made. And moving on, yeah. this is one you mentioned last week, and that's, that's how popular it is. And listen, last right? week's show, we're really getting in there. The next is, you know, the answer to the question is like every 
time to use like in a war group, and I never got this question wrong. What's that fucking boring, stupid mummy movie from the early eighties? Ah, The Awakening. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> this may be the most boring horror film of the eighties. Yeah, I mean, first of all. I mean, I it's got Charlton Heston in it, and I don't know, man. As much as I enjoy Planet of the Apes, I've never really seen much that I like Charlton Heston in. He was not a great actor, and I'll get a little political here for a second, but, you know, I appreciate that everyone has their second amendment rights. That's fine. That's why we live in America. But his association with the NRA always started. Well, it didn't always annoy me, but it started to annoy me, you know, later in, in his life. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. You're right. It's a boring version of, well, what, what was essentially a boring novel. Um, that was based on, uh, oh, what? I don't think the name of the novel was The, the Awakening. The Seven Stars by Bram Stoker, his follow-up to Dracula. Right, right, yeah. And you can't, yeah, it's yeah. always rough when you when you follow a number one hit with a bomb. I mean, I don't know. I, I wasn't alive back then to see the book sales, but mm. I'm sure that it did. I'm sure it didn't sell as well as Dracula did. That was his yeah. big hit. So, but yeah. And next is a movie that, till you watch it, and the way they advertise it, are like, oh, this is just a crappy Halloween ripoff. Then you watch it, you're like, what the fuck? Fucking gold, <laughs> fucking mirror. Ah, that fucking kills hilarious. <laughs> that would be Uli Lamel's The Boogie Man. Yeah. That movie right? has some of the most insane kills of a horror film ever. Yeah. And it it is it does have a very similar feel to uh to Halloween, but uh there is an actual in film explanation uh that the that the killers are ghosts they they do kind of explain that in the film which it does have some insane kills i i agree um but i think that kind of robs it of some of the power that halloween has we talked about this uh before uh on the show where uh Part of what makes Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween kind of in just kind of like an inferior version of the story is that they, you know, Rob Zombie takes so much time to explain all this stuff about Michael Myers that was never explained in the original film. And this actually goes back to another show we did where we talked about films that we shot, we thought should have either been a, a one off or just a trilogy or something. Uh, yeah. the, you know, the original Halloween 
series has gone on so long that they've robbed Michael Myers of all of his mystique. You know, you don't really, you know, there's nothing left to answer anymore. It, and now they're just making yeah. shit up as go along, you know. So, and that but, was the boogeyman, too. The boogeyman is what happens when a director, yeah, I want to make a movie. Okay, make a flash. You know I won't give a fuck. <laughs> okay, right? you make it in on budget. And then Boogeyman yeah. 2 came out and I was like, you know I really won't give a fuck in this one. <laughs> right, right. And that's the point where hey. a woman is killed by a toothbrush instead of gore spouting out of a mouth and toothpaste. He <laughs> really doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> And it's funny that we didn't think we didn't think of that one. Uh, um, oh no, I no, I was thinking of a different movie. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking of a different movie from when we did our uh, when we did a a show a, a a while back. Never mind. I uh, you know me, man, water brain. I was thinking of a I was thinking of an actor. Not in there. I was thinking of an actor that was and not in the movie. Man. Yeah. And moving on, this is a film that came out on Blu-ray this year, and that Hannibal Apocalypse. God, is this tragedy fun for Antonio Margarita? You love this movie. Oh you God, yeah. <laughs> well, how can you not like a movie with dialogue with like ashy, ashy, shitty shit? <laughs> <laughs> or my advice to most people: if you're remember, just piss on it. Yeah, piss on it. <laughs> this is about now, two guys, uh, John Saxon, who's trying to rescue two guys from his house, and he just. It turns out there's some kind of cannibal virus, and it just gets nuts from there. It's nuts. We did talk about this movie a little bit when we did our tribute to John Saxon. Um, And uh, 1980 was a big year for cannibal films, and... This goes back to the whole reason why we did our three-week run-up where we did 78, 79, 80, um, because, you know, I I think that, you know, there was, it wasn't like they were, it wasn't like the studios were clamoring for cannibal, uh, you know, cannibal uh, content, but, you know, they saw that, uh, Mondo films and Cannibal films were gaining some traction on the Grindhouse circuit and the Drive-In circuit, so they did uh, they did pump out quite a few Cannibal films in the '80s. Um, not just Cannibal Apocalypse, but uh, Cannibal Holocaust. I think came out in 1980, or was that 81? I think Cannibal Holocaust came out in 1980 okay, as well. Okay, we'll get into that. It's next, so we'll get to that long story right now. It came out in 1980, and they couldn't find a distributor for shit over here. 
though it didn't come out into a very butchered version in 1984. And we didn't get to see it uncut until the year 2000. Unless you're on the bootleg circuit. Yeah. (laughs) And we did a whole commentary, me, Fred, and Gorefield, so... If you want to learn about the Cannibal Holocaust, watch that. But the one one thing that I do have to say about Cannibal Apocalypse, and I will uh, mention this as I have to mention every week, and this will not be the first time that I bring it up, but as our listeners know, I do uh, love Quentin Tarantino above and beyond all other directors. In uh, <laughs> in Inglorious Bastards, uh, when uh, Brad Pitt goes undercover into the theater towards the end when they're trying to assassinate uh, Hitler, what does he say that his fake Italian name is? Antonio Margheriti. Antonio Margheriti. <laughs> Director of Cannibal Apocalypse. So... Hats off, you know. Once again, Tarantino works in a subtle reference to something that he he loves. So, uh, yeah, not like and it's a surprise. One of the two know. jokes in the movie that I laughed my ass off that no one got. And you can guess yep. what the other one was, that I was laughing and no one else was. And that's my favorite piece of wood from Mexico. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You go, well, Diglett. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's I was going to say. This won't be the last time that I mention Tarantino uh, in this conversation because uh, I've got I've got a Hugo Stiglitz movie uh, kind kind of in in the back of my mind uh, before we're done talking. But we'll see how many movies yeah. we get through. You know, but I've got a huge Stiglitz. Yeah. And moving on, we're moving on to what I and most Haunted House big fans consider the second best Haunted House movie of all time after the original Haunting. And that Peter Medak's The Changeling with George C. Scott. Yeah, um... Yeah, I I like the changeling. Yeah, it um I just I have to say and I know this is going to be a controversial hot take, but I just feel like George C. Scott plays the same character in every movie. Like he doesn't really have a range and I like the changeling. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. And yeah, Peter Medoc has always put out good material, but yeah, I don't know. A lot of times I feel like the actor, the director is only as good as his actor and his script. And I just feel like, I don't know the changeling. It, like I said, it's just George C. Scott. The only movie that I've ever seen George C. Scott in that I really feel like he worked to his full potential was hardcore. And I think, you know, a lot of people, I think, 
would would mark that amongst some of his best performances. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, George C. Scott goes looking for his daughter after she goes missing and finds out that she's been forced into porn and he reacts appropriately. But yeah, I'm, the Changeling is a good haunted house movie. My one problem with it is I just don't really like George C. Scott's performance. But again, that's my personal opinion. I don't care for him in most of the films that he's in. So I don't know. That's just me. But it's by no means, by no means should you not see the film. I mean, it is a good haunted house flick. It's very psychological kind of horror. It almost kind of reminds me of like the haunting of Hill house or like one of those flicks because it's not, it's not like poltergeist. Yeah. It's not like poltergeist. Before we move on, I would like to state for the record that that opinion came from a drunken comedian, a drunken failed comedian (laughs) who thinks his words is good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, I haven't failed yet. <laughs> I am drunk and I am a comedian, but I have not yet failed. <laughs> we'll talk and about next this again as well next year. <laughs> yeah, we'll, and we'll talk, we'll talk about my yeah. comedy career again next year. <laughs> yeah, and if. You had the USA Channel in the early 80s and watched Saturday Nightmares. There's no way that you haven't watched the children. This is the one with the children and the black fingernails that when they touch you, you start smoking and fry. Yeah, yeah. Now, this, this movie creeped me out. And you're right. I did see it on cable when I was a kid. Uh, and, yeah, to this day, this if I run across this flick, still creeps me out. Like, the, I, you know, we grew up in that era where uh, the threat of nuclear war, uh, you know, was so uh, predominant that any movie that involved any kind of, like, you know, event that was even akin to nuclear war was terrifying. And for anyone who hasn't seen the children, uh, I don't remember if they ever explain. I haven't seen it in many years, but I, do, I don't remember if they ever explained. It went to first, a nuclear cloud in their bus, and it turned them into the black fingernails thing. This movie yeah. scared me so bad that in the 90s, every time I seen a goth kid with black painted <laughs> fingernails, I would punch them in the mouth and run out of fear. <laughs> right? Yeah. I couldn't remember what the exact cause of it was, but yeah, the school bus drives through the yellow cloud of toxic smoke, and then yeah, the kids turn evil. Yeah, it's it's a. I think it was kind of. I kind of think it was supposed to be like an '80s take on like, uh, you know, uh, you know, like an 
like a 1950s, like one of those 1950s kind of like, you know, village of the damned or something like that. Uh, there, there came a point uh, somewhere between the fifties and the eighties where there were a number of films that kind of tried to prey. Ironically enough, they were, they were geared towards uh, teenagers, you know, that were at the time the, the biggest um, demographic that were going to the movies, whether it be the theater or the drive-in, but the films really seem to be trying to prey on the fear of the older generation that the kids were coming to take over. And, you know, that seemed to be the, the, the prevalent, the predominant message that they were trying to, to put across with films like this, uh, that, Hey, you think you're in charge now, but you know, the kids are coming for you, you know? So I don't know interesting concept maybe that's just me uh you know pontificating philosophizing making shit up as i go along because as you pointed out i am a drunk comedian so uh but that's my takeaway from a lot of these movies village of the damned village of and the I'm giant is the intro we actually have a breathalyzer here that we use for him <laughs> just because we spent the money on it <laughs> yes i know i have to yeah, I our our audience doesn't know this, but uh Steven does make me blow into the breathalyzer every uh, every week before we go on air just to make sure I'm sober enough to uh to go on on air before we start talking. So Well, it is, uh, it's like I said, we spent the 50 we spent the money on it, so we got to justify it somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, our you know, we owe it to the sponsors to make sure that we're using all the equipment that, that they're paying for. Of course, I understand. I don't take it personally. I, I don't take it personally. And we no. can write it off on taxes. <laughs> and we write, we write it off on our taxes. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Hey, what's the best Christmas film out there? Well, I mean, if I'm going to get all uh, sentimental... I'm going to say uh, Home Alone. If I'm going to get argumentative with someone who doesn't believe that it's a Christmas film, I'm going to say Die Hard. If I'm going to get argumentative about the best Christmas horror film, and I'm going to get into it with someone who says Silent Night, Deadly Night, when I have to say Christmas Evil. Oh, yeah. Brandon Maggart plays a guy who loves Christmas so much that it breaks his mind when people don't love it as much. This is just a a bizarre, wacky, out-of-the-hill film that I watch every Christmas with Moss Garcia. and I like, uh, you know, I like Black Christmas. Uh, that one's that one's not, you know, that that one's good. But if anyone, this goes back to conversations that you and I have had before about movies that people don't realize are like 
sad ripoffs of other movies. If you like Silent Night, Deadly Night, watch Christmas Evil because it has a very similar plot in that, yes, someone who has a skewed version of what Christmas is supposed to be decides that the only way to fix things is to dress up like Santa and kill people in disturbing ways. Um, Christmas Evil is not quite as graphic as Silent Night, Deadly Night, but it has no. more of a psych- it has more of a psychological edge to it, though. Um, it it does it does have that uh, you know you have more. I, I the only way I can really think to describe it is Silent Night, Deadly Night. They kind of build to Billy's rampage on Christmas by showing you his, his abusive childhood and all the horrible things that happened to him where um, Christmas evil kind of feeds more into like, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like Halloween where you're not really quite, you're not really quite sure 100% like what drove him crazy, but he he's crazy. You know that. That much is clear. I mean, I don't know. I I've never dressed up in a Santa Claus suit. I've never murdered anyone, and I've never married the two. I've never dressed up in a Santa Claus suit and murdered anyone. So uh, yeah, you know. And, uh, and it's a that good movie. Have... Yeah, it is. It is a good flick. Monsters. Yeah. Where else are you going to see a movie with a nine-year-old going? What do you want for Christmas? I want a lifetime subscription to Penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's another thing about this movie is it's more of a black comedy than a uh, horror, you know, straight uh-huh. horror film. Right, right. And uh, just a little aside there for anyone who's listening who uh, who has never seen this film. Um, one of the actors uh, in the film, one of the main characters, uh, is played by Dale Horvath, who starred on The Walking Dead briefly before his character was killed off. So um, I don't know how much that means to people. For for you and I, we like to chase after actors that we like. Uh, if we see them in a movie that we like, we'll... Uh, you know, you and I will watch a movie that we've never heard of just based on actors that we like. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No and he, yeah, the problem is, is Neil's a likable guy, and he's supposed to be playing a real scumbag in the movie, and it's hard to get that across. You know, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's always weird. His job when you is see repossessing someone. houses. <laughs> <laughs> right, it it is hard when you watch an air uh, a an actor play against type. It it is kind of weird, um, you know, especially when, especially you know, you and I go to uh, go to conventions and we meet a lot of these actors and directors, and they all seem like such nice people. And then you're like, I think I'm pretty sure I saw you stab someone in the dick in one of the movies that you were in. But no, yeah. Nice to meet you. Thanks for the autograph. Uh, yeah. Thanks for taking five minutes to chat with me. You seem like a really nice guy. Yeah. Don't talk to my dick. 
<laughs> and moving on, this is one of the Fulci films that really come out in a real quick period over here. It was like a machine gun just ba 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 Yeah. Yeah. And this is City of the Living Dead, a.k.a. Gates of Hell. Yeah. I can understand why they changed the title over here, because if you're a 12-year-old gorehound, City of the Living Dead? Yeah. Gates of Hell. I'm there. Yeah. I've already seen Night of the Living Dead. I've already seen Dawn of the Dead. I've already seen Dead of the Dead of the Dead. So, yeah. I don't need to see well, City of the Living It's just that, you know, back then we, they didn't have the internet preparation. All they had was like uh, the radio ads, the trailers, something to get your ass right. in the seat, drag your ass off the street on, you know. Yeah. Gates of hell. Yeah. And we we were this talking is a about fun this. little Lovecraftian splatter film, and this is where Fulci fans get weird. They're like, "Oh, his zombie trilogy with zombie City of the Living Dead and the Beyond." Right. Uh-huh. And then there's some like, "Oh no, it's his Lovecraft trilogy with." City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. (laughs) Right? And if you ask me, they're both right. Right? See, you and I can talk about stuff like this. Uh, This morning before I went to work, uh, I was talking to Abby, and I was trying to explain to her some of my theories about uh, the way Tarantino films are connected and obviously that's not something that's uh you know unique to me everyone who's ever seen a tarantino film knows that they're all interconnected in different ways but i was throwing out some new theories that i had that i had come up with i get up earlier than she does in the morning because i work days she works nights and then we have the weekends off together but uh so she was just getting out of bed and drinking her coffee. And I started spouting some of my new theories about how Tarantino films are connected. And she just let out a big sigh. And she was like, you really need to make some more nerd friends that you can talk to this shit about, because I don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, Oh yeah, well, let me tell you something. I'm going to talk to Steven later tonight. He's one of my nerd friends and we're going to make some connections that you don't even care about. So, ha, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, I'm on the boat that they're both right. Yes, you could. Yes, you can say, and you're right, that zombie, da, 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 are right there because all three have zombies. And right. the Beyond, City of the Living Dead, and House by the Cemetery are very Lovecraftian. Yes, indeed. Um, City of the Living Dead, um, that's not the one I'm thinking of, though. Uh, what's the movie with the zombies that jump around? Uh, that's not City of the Living Dead. That's not even a Fulci movie, is it? I'm thinking of a totally different, yeah, I'm thinking of a totally different, 
yeah, you love, I can't remember. You're thinking again of Nightmare City, a.k.a. City of the Walking Dead over here. Right, yeah, Nightmare City, yeah. And that movie actually has Hugo Stiglitz in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there you go. See, brought it back around. But yeah, Another this thing. one is, this one is, yeah. And this one um, is um, fun. And next is Rupert Contamination with Luigi Corsi. I love his batshit crazy sci-fi film. This is the one with uh, the alien egg that when they explode on you, they make you explode. <laughs> right? <laughs> but they explode very slowly. So the actors have to really shriek back with terror while the whole two-minute build-up to the explosion happens. <laughs> I'm like, right? run! Ah! <laughs> yeah, I can... Uh, when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to this movie, I can totally see it as much as I enjoy it. I can totally see it when I'm watching it. I can see where Mystery Science Theater would have a field day with those scenes that you're talking about. You know, like they they would they would have so much fun watching the egg yeah the the egg exploding scenes and then. When the eggs do finally explode, uh, the goo that explodes and oozes out and everything, I yeah, I can see uh, I can see MST3K having fun with those scenes, you know. But yeah, um, I've always kind of wondered uh, though, did was that the only movie that that dude ever directed? I can't remember ever seeing another film. I can't remember ever seeing another movie that he directed. Hand out directly, stiff thing. Whap! Star Crash! Whap! The two Blue Ferrigno Hercules movies. Yeah. I don't pay attention to those Hercules movies. Those are that's a bunch of crap. Star Crash, I have seen. Fuck you! It's got Lou Ferrigno throwing a bear into the stars and turning it into a constellation. <laughs> I don't know. Sword, swords and sandal epics are not my are not my bag. I don't I don't really but watch Star any of that Crash. stuff. You gotta know Star Crash. Uh, yeah, the I, Italian. I, uh, yeah. I have seen Star Crash. Yeah. I didn't realize it was yeah. the same director as Contamination. Never occurred to me. No. Yeah. How do you really know a movie's bad when it has a porn star in it and they will not use their porn star name? <laughs> <laughs> The minute had yep. Harry Reams in it, and he wouldn't even use his adult name, which Harry Reams was a big star. And as soon as I seen that, I'm like, holy crap, this movie is not going to be good. And it lived up <laughs> to my expectations. <laughs> right? This one is bad, people. Avoid at all costs. 
Run away! Run away! <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now we can talk about a small but bossy subgenre of the late seventies and the eighties, and that's the don't genre. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, don't go in the house. But if don't go do, in the basement. In the basement. And don't answer the phone. But by don't. God, don't open the window. <laughs> uh, and don't go in the yeah. park and don't go in the woods today. <laughs> don't go in the woods today. The teddy bears are having their picnic. Come on. <laughs> if you've seen that yeah. flasher, it does have that a perverted version of that song. God, God that movie is horrible. That movie. <laughs> I, wa- I, I watched a lot of the don't films for an article. Oh, yeah. It was research. You watched a bunch of adult films for research. Yeah, yeah, sure. Don't films? Yeah, not adult. I watched them for myself. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, oh, I wrote an article on said- it for, uh, uh, well, a column on it for Wings Chop. Thank God for being a oh. columnist. I can write whatever random crap I want. And it beats and it fits. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. The we, we is don't answer the phone, which. The guy who plays the killer, his performance is so good in this crap fest that Michael Rooker used him as a. As one of the guides when he was doing Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, I mean, it has kind of, um, there is a, a light element of humor to it because the two detectives who are trying to solve the case are kind of played as, as goofballs. But it, in that, in that regard, it kind of feels like Last House on the Left. I mean, we've talked we talked about this before. Uh, Last House on the Left has a real strange balance between the the sadistic, vicious torture and killings, and then you've got the goofy cops who you know ride around on a chicken truck to wacky music uh this movie yeah. is similar in that, this movie is similar in that regard i mean it doesn't uh they don't ride around on a chicken truck with wacky music playing but the detectives uh in don't answer the phone are kind of goofballs but yeah you're right um, nicholas worth the, is his name the one who plays the killer yeah and and he is uh he is pretty – I can see – I never knew that until you mentioned it now, but I can see how uh, Michael Rooker took some of that for uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because it's definitely a very intense performance for, you know, again, a movie that plays out unevenly just because of that. Uh, I don't know what the 
I don't know where that conceit came from where directors felt like they needed to have comic relief in a horror or psychological thriller, you know. Um, they, were, possibly, they weren't comic relief. The two guys were just that stupid. <laughs> right. Like uh, yeah. the main guy and the head female lead are supposed to be in love with each other, but they fucking hated each other. And you can tell it. Whenever they're together on film, they look like I want to kill this bitch. I want to cut yeah, his dick off. Right. And, just... <laughs> and of course, you know we take this for granted nowadays. Uh, it, just the way that films are made nowadays, we kind of take for granted that even a low budget film. Uh, you know, I've I've acted in a couple of low budget films and. Even then, when you're on set at some low-budget film, everyone gets to go on break, and you get a slice of pizza and a soda, and, you know, I mean, that, that's what passes for craft services, but at least you, you get a break, and you get to do, you know, have some time to just sit around. You know, we kind of take for granted that a lot of low-budget films, you know, in the early days of filmmaking, if, if you were really making a low-budget film, then... Yeah, you might get to stuff a cheese sandwich into your face under an uh, under an umbrella for ten minutes before you had to go back and deal with someone that you were already not impressed with having to deal with. You know, uh, you know, you look at it now, even like what we consider low budget films nowadays. Uh, if if you've got a budget to make a film, you've got enough money for everyone to sit down under a nice, you know, canvas tent at a table and you know you might get pizza sandwiches fruit uh you know soda relax for a little bit you know chat chat up your co you know, your co-stars um yeah if 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 you Not were acting in a married. Little... <laughs> yeah well no <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to star in a movie with my wife i mean well you know, maybe if it was one that we made in the bedroom by ourselves. Bow, chick, bow, bow. No. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, Nicholas Worth is like, he was actually giving a performance, and everybody else was just there. And another person who took for Nicholas Worth's performance is Heath Ledger. They asked him in an interview what films did he use as a measuring stick for joker and he said henry portrait was serial killer and don't answer the phone yep yep that tracks that tracks yeah and the other one to come out in 1980 is and this is another one of the we got the two best ones and that's don't go in the house it's like home it's it's a disturbing little fucking film yeah yeah, yeah. Don't go in the house is definitely, uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that you know. I think we talked about this uh, when I can't remember what we were talking about before. Maybe uh, uh, I can't remember what movie we might have been talking about, but about prank prank phone calls. Uh, when we were 
were growing up, there was no such thing as caller ID. So we used to get prank phone calls at my house sometimes. And my mother was uh, in college and she worked two jobs. And so a lot of times I was home alone at night and I would get prank phone calls. And since it was the 80s, a lot of times you just get the typical prank phone call that, that we joke about nowadays, but just the heavy breathing, you know, some pervert that was just heavy breathing that just, which I never really understood the, the appeal of that. Were they just hoping that they were going to hear a woman's voice was the heavy breathing them masturbating and almost there. And all they needed was to hear a woman say hello. And they were going to shoot all over the place. I don't know. I'll never understand it, but this was one of those movies. It didn't have the creepy phone calls in it. It didn't have any, have you checked the children or anything, but uh, it was one of those freaky movies that made me afraid to be home alone. Uh, Just, you know, yeah, don't, don't go in the house, you know? And uh, I know it doesn't, it doesn't really track with the plot, the overall plot of the movie, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, this movie just used to freak me out all from everything from the, I hear voices to, you know, maybe I should just, you know, set my house on fire, kind of the overall creepiness yeah. of being alone, you know. Being alone in and your house. This one would be a great double feature with another film that come out this year that we can knock out right now, and that's Maniac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, another film that's terrifying. It like terrifying. I think the basic premise of Don't Go in the House and Maniac. Yeah, they are very similar in uh, mindset. You don't want to be alone with your thoughts if you're already terrified by life in general and you're kind of spiraling out of control, you know. Like, I was terrified of life in general. Fortunately, I didn't spiral out of control and murder anyone, but um, that's kind of the premise. You killed on stage. Yeah, I go on stage. Yeah, I mean, I hop up kill. on stage. And <laughs> I I hop up on stage and I tell people about my insane thoughts, but I do not act on them. I have not acted on them. But uh, <laughs> yes, and I the do term, too. And what I'm saying is, that's <laughs> the term for when a comedian has a great set, right? Yeah, it is. You are correct. I went out and yeah. Freaking kill. Uh, yeah, I do kill. Uh, not every night, but, you know. Uh, but either way. But moving on. I mean, okay. You, when when you're a comedian, you, when you're a comedian, you either kill or you bomb. So either way, I mean, someone's dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but moving on, the next is the one that I consider the most overrated horror film of 1980 and almost a lot of people like it 
And I'll admit, yeah, I'm a big Brian De Palma fan, but Dress to Kill is shit. Yeah, I I love me some Brian De Palma, but he's hit or miss for me. Uh, you know, he's one of those directors where you know he'll put out a movie that I really like, um, and then his next movie I just really have no interest in. I think for me, over the years, I think what I've come to realize is that I like Brian De Palma as a technical director. Anyone who's a fan of Brian De Palma knows that he does really interesting stuff with long shots and split screen and a lot of like really neat technical stuff. But a lot of times, either his writing or the screenplays that he chooses to direct. Uh, it, it, it just a lot of times, it, it, it's like that for a lot of directors for me. Like, it, there can be a director that I really like, and I'm just like, you know, I just don't give a shit. Like, Peter Jackson's a perfect example, you know? Like, I, I like Peter Jackson. I like 90% of his movies, but... I don't give a shit about Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, like none of that. I've, I've sat through those films um, at the behest of an ex-girlfriend. And I don't want to say that that's the reason why we broke up, but it might've, uh, it might've added to the reasons why we needed to break up, but <laughs> no, but you know, yeah, Brian De Palma, I like his directing style, but I don't always like the material that he chooses. And yeah, Dress to Kill seemed kind of like uh, like a tired version of um, uh, what, what, what was the other? What's that? A Jalo. Yeah, for sure. But what was the movie that he did uh, just? What was his the movie he did just before Dress to Kill? Um, trying to remember Carrie yeah but I kind of feel like there was a lot of um, I kind of feel like there was a lot of similarities between uh, Dress to Kill and Body Double Um, but I can't remember how far apart yeah I just can't remember how far apart those flicks were. Uh, uh, Dress to Kill was 1980. Body Double was about 86. Yeah. And I, I, I think there were similarities between those two films, and maybe De Palma himself even recognized that he could have done a better job uh, with, with a similar yeah. uh, premise. Um now, yeah. the big, the biggest criticism that people have about De Palma is that they all say, well, he's just ripping off Hitchcock all the time. But that, that doesn't, that was never really a concern for me. Um, and, of course, you know, I can't go 10 minutes without mentioning how much I love Tarantino. And Tarantino yeah. bites a lot off of De Palma. So... You know, it's 
it's not so much about ripping somebody the off as the Palma documentary, which is one of the greatest ending lines ever to documentary. They accuse me of being a rip off artist. But if they you look and see how many people rip off my end shot from Carrie, I'm the most ripped off art filmmaker <laughs> of all time. Ain't that right. a bitch? <laughs> and right. moving on, we got a lot of things. Have you ever heard of uh, effects? Effects. Um, trying to. I think the old. I don't know if I've ever seen it. The only the only thing I can relate relate it to is just being a fan of Tom Savini. Didn't he do the Didn't he do the effects for that movie? And he was an actor in it. I mean, this movie has Tom Savini, John Amplis, Joe Pilato. I don't think I've ever seen it. It does. I, I, it's like I said, the syndrome, but it's just tri- It's one of those two trippy films made made in Pittsburgh by the Romero crew without Romero. Another one is. Uh, Blood eaters. Blood eaters. <laughs> yeah, is that a... Yeah, played the black because just go see it. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't, if if you're a horror fan and you've never seen Fade to Black, just watch it. It'll give you a kick. It's a it's a fun movie with lots of references to other horror films and not in the way that we were just talking about with uh De Palma it's it's not about the direction it's not about the direct references to other horror movies it's just a fun nod to uh the slasher genre with uh a guy who's a big fan of horror movies so that's all I'll say about it if you haven't seen it See, fade to black. Fade to black. Good flick. Good flick. And now we're moving on to a film where we talk about John Carpenter stuff. I consider the fog, the first half of it is fucking good. The creepiness, the setup, the opening with John Houseman is fucking good. <clears throat> then we get the zombies. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can see the know. fucking train go off the rails. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I was talking about this movie yesterday or the day before with Abby. And, again, I've mentioned several times that this is the strange dichotomy between Abby and myself is that she does not – she likes atmospheric horror movies. She doesn't like blood and guts, but she'll watch a scary movie as long as it's just scary, not blood and guts. But I was watching a YouTube video where some Yahoo was trying to say, oh, these are the 30 best horror movies of all time or whatever. So, of course, I dipped my toe into it. And uh, at one point, he brought up The Fog. And I'm going to have to go out on a limb here and disagree with you completely. I do not enjoy The Fog at all. And I'm a John Carpenter fan. 
but I have never liked that movie. I have tried to sit through it. I, I have sat through it more than once, but I just don't like it. I, I don't know. It just doesn't, there's just something about it that just bores me. I can't, I can't, I don't care. I, I just, I don't like it. And it might have something to do with the fact that I currently live on the main coast. So, you know, lighthouses and fog and I also happen to live in one of the biggest cities in Maine and there are, there's a huge population of junkies. So I can look out my window any, any, any day and see a lighthouse fog and people stumbling around in the dark. So (laughs) I don't know. No, I'm just being an asshole. Well, if you listen to John Carpenter's Carpenter commentary, he even admits that the, he loves all he's done the first half, but he totally screwed up the second half. And you right. wish he could refilm that whole second half again. Right. And, you know, this goes back yeah. to what we were talking about before with Brian De Palma. I think even though, the, you know, it's different, but uh, we've talked about in the past, uh, I think Prince of Darkness is kind of a better version of The Fog. I mean, even though Prince of Darkness owes more to Assault on Precinct 13, if we're talking about, you know, John Carpenter's filmography, um, you know, but but Prince of Darkness kind of follows in that same vein. I mean, you know, they're, it's kind of a blend of the two films, I would say. You know, everyone's trapped inside the, the church while the you know, the zombie alien vampires, whatever they're supposed to be in Prince of Darkness, demons, uh, you know, huddle around outside, but then there's the creepy fog rolling in and, you know, the the demonic voices from beyond the, you know, beyond the depths, you know, whatever, but I don't know. I just never really cared for the fog. I've given it more than it's, and moving on, you cannot talk about the 80s without this. There is pretty much, except for one year, when a new one of these cranked out every fucking year. And that's Friday the 13th. What? What's it called? Who was it? Friday the 13th. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I've never, I've never heard of it. I, I don't I don't think I've ever heard of it. Friday the thirteenth, you say? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean they cranked out one of these a year. Yeah. It it it, it was like a machine. I mean they didn't I don't think I mean we talked about this uh when we were talking about movie movie series that we thought should have been one and done or just a trilogy. And we agreed that Friday the 13th has gone on too long, but we did have, we were kind of up in the air about it because anyone who watches the first Friday the 13th knows, um, or if you've never seen Friday the 13th, then get your head out of out from under the rock that you've lived under and go watch Friday the 13th. But uh, if you've seen Scream, 
you know, uh, it's spoiler alert from Scream, but also spoiler alert for Friday the 13th. But again, if you haven't seen a movie from 1980 at this point, then that's your fucking problem. Uh, Betsy Palmer, Jason's mother, is the the killer uh, in the original Friday the 13th. Now, that that could have been a one-and-done horror movie, and it would have been a great film, but we then the world would have been robbed of Jason. So I think when you and I were talking about it a few weeks ago on the show, we kind of landed on maybe Halloween 1, 2, and 3 would have been enough because we would have gotten uh, Jason's mom as the killer in the first one, uh, Jason with the bag over his head in the second one, and then Jason with the hockey mask in the third one, and that could have been the end of it. It's, yeah. He still would have been, yeah, he still would have been as iconic a character. But the reason that the Friday the 13th films turned out better than the Halloweens or the other ones is that Sean Cunningham didn't give a fuck and let the director's vision, like, Part four, Joseph Zito, brutal ass film. Part five, right? Danny Steinman, fucking pervert and sleaze merchant. And five is sleazy. Yep. And yeah. the guy who directed six, I forget his name right now, bought comedy to it. And it's great because it works because the comedy is great. <laughs> the the only movie in the Friday the 13th series that I really dislike is part uh, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, I just, uh, you know, it, it, there's just something about it. Like, it just feels so cheap. They didn't have no focused idea. Yeah, And we're coming off a series of films where they were director-focused rather than, right. you know, and like, we talked okay, about make this. A... Yeah. yeah. We talked about this before, too, is that we had the run-up to that with the Tommy Jarvis, what what you and I have come to refer to as the Tommy Jarvis trilogy, where we had five, six, and seven with Tommy Jarvis, and then we got no, part four, eight. No, four, five, and six was Tommy Jarvis. Seven was right. Carrie. Yeah, right. But like so I what, said, it's what made the difference? Like I said, director, like four is definitely a Joseph Zito film, and that's why it's good. Yeah. Five is definitely a Danny Steinman. Right. And yeah. six is the direct, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, but going back to the original, which is what we're talking about tonight anyway, is the 1980s. Yeah, Friday the 13th definitely kind of burst onto the scene, and they were, again, the whole reason that we're doing this series, 78, 79, 80, is we're, you know, trying to connect some dots here. Uh, Friday the 13th was definitely trying to piggyback off of the success of Halloween and 
they did just that, much like Halloween was made on a low budget. And uh, we've talked about this before for a long time, was the highest grossing independent film of all time. Uh, yeah, Friday the 13th. Until Blair Witch Project came out. Right. Friday the 13th replicated that success. They never made as much money uh, off of the first film as Halloween made uh, against their budget, but they, they yeah, did but come up with a good Friday the 13th know? was a studio film, Paramount. Yeah. Right. And what's so, funny is they didn't have an idea for it. They just made a poster. Friday the 13th, the scariest idea the scariest day of the year. And then all of a sudden, people were like, oh, good, this sounds good. Here's money. Have it in my theaters and so-and-so. Oh, shit. What do you mean? They want to do it. What are we going to do? I don't know. We got to get a fucking script now. It's funny that you should mention that because – I'm sitting at my desk, as always, while we're uh, doing our podcast, and I have a gigantic uh, original version of the Friday the 13th poster framed and hanging over my desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but yeah, this is the one that pretty much set the the cobalt rate of what most 80s slashers could be. There was Black Christmas. College, Halloween, Babysitter, Friday the 13th, Summer Camp. Yep. 90% of the slashers from here on in were either college, summer camp, or just teens, you know. Yeah, still to this day. I mean, right now, while we're talking, I've got... uh, I've got a, I've got the movie on in the background. The, uh, uh, oh, what do you call it? The, the one, can't even remember the name of the friggin' movie that's playing on my TV right now. Uh, we talked about it on one of our other shows. Uh, answer the phone and uh, have you checked the children? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. When a stranger calls. Yeah, when a stranger calls. Yeah, I'm watching, uh, I'm not really watching it, but it's on the TV behind me right now. What a stranger Yeah, call. that one would be going good. The tri- the ones that would be a great triple feature would be uh, When a Stranger Calls, Alligator, and Candyman. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And why? That- They're all urban legend focused horror films. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that goes back to what we were and, talking about. Yeah. Before. And moving out, this is going to be some quick kills. Uh, Funeral Home, crappy slasher, but it's the first film to have Bill Paxton in the lead role. Bill Paxton. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a quick and easy one. We got The Godsend, which if you haven't got that four-pack with it on there from Shout Factory, you need to before it starts going up in price because you just have to see it because The Godsend is just batshit crazy. 
It's yeah. like a cross between a slasher, the omen. <laughs> <laughs> right? And they're moving yeah. on. It re- yeah. It reminds me of that uh, movie. It's a uh, bad slasher. Yeah. It, it, but it kind of reminds mm. me of that movie, uh, Abby. Remember that movie, Abby, that was definitely a ripoff of uh, The Exorcist? Where yeah. the girl... Yeah, the girl was possessed, but there was also a serial killer on the loose. Uh, yeah, that one's not really worth seeking out, but uh, the godsend, yeah, I would say check that out. But yeah, Abby, don't don't waste your time with that. Which is he knows you're alone. And there's only one reason why we still talk about this film today, and that Tom Hanks is in it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. It hurts, yeah. which sucks, sucks, sucks. Ass. Yeah. Even the horse itself isn't creepy. <laughs> no. No, no, it's it's a shitty movie, and yeah, yeah, and it sadly, you know, I mean, I don't know how. I know nowadays, you know, you hear a lot of stuff about like, oh, Edgar Wright, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, and Kevin Smith are all getting together for coffee, and they're talking about the new movies that they're working on, like. I don't know how much of that went on in the in the 80s and how many of these independent directors knew each other, but you got to know that, like, if they had all been sitting around talking about the movies that they were working on and Sean Cunningham was talking about Friday the 13th, some of these guys might have just bailed on these bad ideas for movies because, yeah, He Knows You're Alone is a terrible, terrible film. But... It's a sleazy slasher shot like a softcore porn with Vaseline lens. Yeah, even the movie poster looks like it was fucking shot through a Vaseline lens. The only thing it's got yeah. going for it, the only thing it's got going for it is Tom Hanks. But you know, I mean, and two good decapitations, which because of the MPAA is shot behind some blood red filter. Right, and uh, they did have Tom Hanks, as we've mentioned a few times, but Friday the 13th had Kevin Bacon. That was Kevin Bacon's first film, but yeah, I don't know. But Tom Hanks went on to win a couple of Oscars. Kevin Bacon, I can't even remember the last film he was in. The last film I remember with Kevin Bacon was, what, the one where he the wood the woodsman where he was the child molester who gets out of prison and oh god that was a good one yeah yeah it was it was a good movie he was good in that yeah we got that's the last movie i remember classic here what do you get hey what do you get if you take the music that was left over from dawn of the dead and get the same jumper suits and just make a batshit crazy zombie film, you get hell of the living dead. 
Bruno <laughs> Mattei is not a good filmmaker, but by God, he's fun. And that's another one we can pass over because me and Fred did a commentary on it. <laughs> right? Next Fine. is The House at the Park of the Edge. Why do you call it that, Stephen? Because every trailer I've ever seen has that stupid, stupid, stupid typo on it. Instead of yeah. the kids, the right? And this is another and one with David Hess, so you can connect this to Last House on the Left. It, that's the sad thing about David Hess. It just seems like he was stuck playing crew. It's like yeah. almost every movie that he was in, he's playing crew. Yeah, and he's another one that I'm sure you have as well, but I've met him, uh, I had met him at um, uh, conventions, and he's such a nice guy, but all you can think about when you're talking to him is, yeah, yeah, I've seen you uh, rape a bunch of women on camera, so don't. Nothing personal, but you. I'm just kind of creeped out by being in your presence, you know. <laughs> but no, yeah, he's a wicked nice you, yeah. But <laughs> if you want to look for another great film that he in, look for Hitchhike with him and Franco Nero. That one's fucking good. Yeah, yeah. I like House at the Edge of the. Um, you're right. It, he did kind of get stuck playing Krug, the same character that he played in Last House on the Left, and the film is similar in tone um, to Last House on the Left, but I think in some ways uh, House on the Edge of the Park is a little more despicable because, like we were talking about earlier, Last House on the Left has the kind of whether intentional or inadvertent, it does have the comic relief of the two bumbling cops and their wacky, you know, music when they're driving around on the chicken truck or whatever. Uh, House on the Edge of the Park doesn't really ever let up. It's it's pretty unrelenting uh, from beginning to end. And it does have a lot of similar disturbing imagery and themes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you want... You know, this is a hard. This is a thing that I always have a hard time doing when I'm trying to recommend films to people. Um, you know, it's like you got you got to know your audience. And if somebody says, "Hey, you know, what's a good creepy home invasion movie I can watch?" Well, I can say, you know, well, The Strangers, you know, the one of the newer horror films, or I can say, well, The House on the Edge of the Park. I mean. They're both creepy movies, but they're disturbing in very different ways, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, and moving on, what if, hey, let's make a 1950s monster movie, but add rape. Mm-hmm. Lots <laughs> of rape. And right. you would get humanoids from the deep. Yeah. It's a great little monster movie. There's a lot of rape. <laughs> I had a... This was kind of funny. Uh, there's a new guy who came to my... Who who uh, came to work with me. And he's an interesting fellow. 
Um, he doesn't watch a lot of movies. Uh, he reads a lot, listens to a lot of music. So we talk a lot about books and we talk a lot about music because I read a lot and I listen to a lot of music. But just yesterday, apropos of nothing, he was like, hey, I saw this movie the other day, and I know you and your friend Steven do that podcast, and uh, I was wondering, have you guys ever seen this movie called Humanoids from the Deep? And I was like, of all of the random movies that some guy I've only known for a month might just bring up out of the blue, you know, like no one's ever going to come up to you and be like, Hey, just a quick question. Uh, have you ever seen Goodfellas? Uh, you know, have you ever seen star Wars? And the, the first time this guy asks me about cinema, he's like, I watched this great movie the other day, humanoids from the deep. It's about these uh, monsters. And uh, yeah, it's a little graphic. There's some like rape and stuff in it. Uh, and then he, then he goes on to say, uh, have you ever heard, you've heard of Roger Corman, right? <laughs> uh, it was definitely uh, one of the funniest yeah. conversations I've ever had, like, about film with somebody. So This is one of yeah. those that they say, oh, I love 80s horror. I'd recommend this, but I have to mention rape. If you can't get past <laughs> yeah. that part of the movie, then don't <laughs> watch it. <laughs> And it's not, it's not, as we were discussing just a minute ago about, uh, you know, the house at the edge of the park or last house on the left. Those films also feature rape, but that is human on human rape, which, while despicable, may not disturb you as much as humanoids from the deep, which is not, we cannot reiterate this enough it is not human on human rape this is an entirely yeah, separate the creature from the black lagoon caught her and got her alone like he wanted to right yeah what we're, we're i think weren't you and i talking about that i think we were messaging on facebook one day about this movie and i think one of us made that comment and that i think that was exactly what it must have been you because i think it was we were just like yeah, humanoids from the deep is like if creature of the, from the black lagoon actually caught her. <laughs> that's that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much a good way to sum up this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and moving on, we got one of the most bizarre movies about necrophilia I've ever seen, and that's Macabre by Lamberto Bava. Yeah. Well. It's interesting to me that you have categorized your uh, how bizarre the movies you've seen are about necrophilia. Um, personally, I kind of think every movie about necrophilia is bizarre, but all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the reason this yeah. is bizarre is because of the ending. We're going to spoil the ending because this is really ought to make it because it's like through the whole movie, it's like she's making noise and it turns out this movie does the head giving head joke before a reanimator. And then at the end, yeah. he kills her, the main hero, and he goes over to the head and the head rips his throat out with his teeth. So is it necrophilia? Is he dead? Is it a zombie? What the 
fuck movie? <laughs> yeah. Just just because uh, it's a decapitated head doesn't make it necrophilia if it's still alive. But maybe I don't know. Like you said, maybe he. It does it count as zombie? And if if he's a zombie, then I guess that counts as necrophilia. I don't know. We were talking about we were kind of going back and forth about this when we did our Romero show and all of the spinoff and sequels to Night of the Living Dead and we were talking about Return of the Living Dead Part 3 and we were trying to figure out if that counted as necrophilia because even though she was dead, she wasn't really, I mean she was still sentient so does it still count as necrophilia? If I, this is very confusing, this is a very confusing area to get into, Stephen. We're gonna have to really sit yeah. down. Moving this on. Is gonna take, this and is gonna next take is a movie that I wished was better than it was, and that's the Monster Club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I just watched that. It's got one of the that. greatest songs. I mean, it's got so many great parts that you wish the film in a whole was better. Yeah. I actually just rewatched that last week. Just randomly it popped up on Hulu or Amazon or something. And I rewatched it mostly because, I mean, it's one of those movies when you're like Vincent Price, and John Carradine, and I always love any anthology film anyway. I love anthology horror film. So, but yeah, it's not as good as it could have been. Not at all. Uh, But I think, um, uh, you know, I think Amicus Productions, um, had done a bunch of previous anthology films. Didn't Amicus do like the original um, Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror? I think those were Amicus movies originally, but I think by the time this film came out, I think Amicus was already like spiraling down into bankruptcy and I think this movie is so low budget that they, yeah. This movie was so low budget that the ending doesn't work because for a lot of the monsters, they just bought in the club, they just bought rubber masks and put them on. Right, yeah. (laughs) And they don't even try to bother hiding the scene. Uh, Right. But it does have yeah. that badass theme song. Monsters rule. <laughs> right. That's just badass. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I can't remember oh, which one of the Go Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I can't remember which one of the Gun for Hire Amicus directors did that one. Um, oh, Roy Ward. But I think I think he was I think part of the reason why it plays out so cheap and uh, half-assed is I think he I think he died like right after that movie was made. I think he was sick and 
kind of was just like, you know, one last paycheck for my family before I dropped it. Like, I mean, I can't say for sure. Yeah, really I, that's, just, that's just speculation. But. Roy Ward. Right. But. Yeah. Moving I, on, is so. we got the two best black comedies of war of, well, and one of the best slashers, two of the best slashers of the 80s. And if you don't consider the first one of the two we're going to talk about as one of the best, just get out. Just turn this off right now. <laughs> and that is Motel. The first one is, well, we're going to talk about Motel Hell and Mother's Day. Motel yeah. Hell is just damn so good. Roy Calhoun, they just gave him a role and say, go with it. And he did. Yeah, yeah, he ran with it. He is so great in that movie. I mean, and the whole the whole prospect of it, just the whole idea of the film, is so kind of out there to begin with that you really needed. I mean, if it wasn't Rory Calhoun. The only other actor I can possibly see playing this role would have been Dennis Hopper. He's the only other one who could have just gone that unhinged with with no provocation, just like, all right, just do your thing. It's a the plot of the film is bizarre and they needed an actor who could just cut loose. Rory Calhoun, uh no pun intended, Rory Calhoun kills it. He is great in that movie. Uh, definitely. Wolfman Jack. Yeah. I forgot Wolfman Jack was in that. It's the only movie you're going to get uh, the postman from Cheers. And the punk rocker. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. A little known fact here, Normie. I got killed in uh, Motel Health. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got my neck broke. It is just this one is fun. It's got everything you need. It this one, Motel Hell and Return of the Living Dead are the two perfect gore splatter comedies of the eighties. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It if if you it, yeah, it is this is one of those things that I have to go back and forth with Abby about is, you know, yeah, there's going to be some blood and guts, but it's a funny movie, you know? And sometimes I can sell her on that. Like she likes Shaun of the dead, despite the gore, she still enjoys Shaun of the dead, you know? So she's not 100% against gore, but there, yeah, it has to be tempered with some good comedy and motel hell is a perfect movie. If you have a friend who has a sense of humor and can put up with some gore, then yeah, motel hell is a good, is a good flick for a fun popcorn movie night there. The plot is not that complicated. It's not like you have to follow some ridiculous plot line to figure out what's going on. No, it's pretty simple. Yeah. They're just, kidnapping people and killing them. It's 
you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it. You call me yeah, a hypocrite. Me you know, it's like you call me a hypocrite. Hell, my, my, my brother is the biggest cannibal in the county. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah. of course, one of the greatest death lines ever. I'm the biggest hypocrite of all. I use <laughs> preservatives. <laughs> it just comes so out of blue. You just uh, right. And uh, Mother's Day is great, but God, does it have a mean streak to it? Yeah, yeah. And but it it's. Go ahead. No, nope. say what you're gonna say. But it has it's just good, but God, that mean streak in it can turn a lot of people off. Yeah. Well, what I was gonna say is for the most part, and I know this is gonna be blasphemy, we're gonna get some hate mail for this, but I am not a big fan of trauma films. When now, when Troma goes out and buys a movie like Blood Sucking Freaks or Combat Shock, okay, they buy a movie. Or, di- or Diary of a Punk. Right. I, I, I like films, and I'll support Troma, and I'll buy those products. But for the most part, when a film is... Uh, you know, yeah, written, yeah. produced, and directed by Lloyd Kaufman. I'm just like, don't give a shit. I'm, I've never been a fan of the Toxic Avenger. I mean, I, I am, you know, a, a peripheral fan. I appreciate it for what it is, but I don't care that oh, much. Oh, the first you know? Toxic Avenger is my favorite of all of them. Yeah, right? Well, it's definitely the best of all of them, for sure. But... But this movie, Mother's Day, it is actually an in-house produced trauma film directed by uh, no, Lloyd Kaufman. Well, it was directed by Lloyd Kaufman's brother, so I always assumed it was yeah. an in-house production. What happened was that he did it, and no one would touch the movie. And right. Yeah, Lloyd just bought, you know, like, okay, I'll take it. Huh. I never knew that. I always assumed because it was directed by his brother that it was an in-house trauma film. Huh. I never knew that. But it is a really good movie. You're right, though. It does have a really dark streak to it, and it kind of makes me wonder about the relationship that the Kaufman brothers had with their actual mother. Because, <laughs> yeah. Punk, yeah, I love that. You see those too. Punk rock, disco, punk rock, disco. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and here's some advice. If you want some advice to all no-budget or first-time film directors or any film director, look at the ending of Mother's Day. Do not. If you're going to use a dude with a big-ass mustache and beard to play a female monster at the end of the movie, don't make the ending shot of 
freeze frame on his face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it might be a little easy to know, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But no, I would definitely suggest the Mother's Day. Of the year. Yeah. Uh, Night of the Demon, a.k.a. Bigfoot fuck shit up. Because that's the whole plot of the movie. Some, yep. Uh, something, people are in the woods and Bigfoot comes and fucks shit up. Well, I don't know what my favorite kill in the movie is where he takes the, t- the two Girl Scouts to make them stab each other. All I can think of is that one scene in the Mac where uh, they make that guy stab himself and all you hear is uh, Richard Pryor goes, stick yourself, motherfucker, stick yourself. <laughs> right? Oh. Yeah. Uh, and, Night of the Demon. Uh, I didn't get Night to of the Demon. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Night of the Demon is, is, is cheesy, but it does have some really great kills in it. And, of course, I love it because Anyone who regularly listens to our show or reads our blog knows that I'm a huge nerd for Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, all that, Chupacabra, all that stuff. I'm a huge nerd for it, so I can't recommend Night of the Demon on the basis of its actual filmmaking, direction, writing, or anything like that. But, yeah, it's got some really gory kills in it, and so... I. I can recommend it if you're and a fan had, of And this is the one where uh, Bigfoot rips the biker's pee-pee off for pissing in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. And That'll it's happen. so random and out of nowhere that it makes it hilarious rather than gory. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, it's like the guy just stops there and he's like, do-do-do-do-do, shoot, what the hell? You know? Hmm. Yep. That's why I never pee in the woods anymore. We've talked about Nightmare City too much on this show. Let's move on. <laughs> right? Night of the Hunted, which is great. This is during John Wayne's best period as a director. Well, you there? Yeah. Yeah, what movie? What what one did you say? I didn't hear what you said for the next movie. Night of the Hunted. Oh, Night of the Hunted. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, um Yeah, he came off a good run there. Um Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, he's, it's, he's a hard director to describe to anyone. If you're not familiar with Gene Rowland's films, then, uh, I don't even know. You know, a lot of times when people find out that you have a lot of knowledge about films and they ask you like, you know, there are certain directors, they ask you like, oh, well, where should I start? You know, what's the first movie I should watch by this director? Gene Rowland is one of those directors I can't even 
start. I can't even tell you where to start. Like, all of his films. Oh, come are on. Just, that was an easy one. It's either The Great Sadass or the one that almost everybody loves, Living Dead Girl. Yeah. I mean, I think. But it not depends. Night of the Hunted. Night of yeah, the Hunted not- is. Night of the Hunted is basically the first thing you do when you go to school is take your GED, take your college course. <laughs> college <laughs> right. You know. No. Well, started off doing a lot of a lot of vampire movies. Um and I don't know, we've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan of vampire movies. I do like I do like you know, I do like his films. It's not that I don't like vampire films per se, but I don't know. Uh, they just, no, uh, I'm just not that interested. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get the Jamie Lee Curtis slasher films out of the way. I'm like, I don't know why people like it. It's boring as shit. Nothing happens for the first 90 minutes. I was not close to, it feels like two hours. Nothing yeah, well, that, that, that goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, if all of these directors had been sitting around talking to each other, you know, about the movies that they had coming out in 1980, and again, Sean Cunningham is just going to be sitting there chuckling like, <laughs> oh, you guys are not ready for what I've got coming out this year. You know, all these other directors are like, oh, I got this great slasher film coming out. And, and you know, Sean Cunningham just had to have been sitting there laughing like, I think I might be in the lead on this one. Yeah, Prom Night is boring as shit. No. I mean, yeah. yeah. And the one that more people should see, because it is good and it's fun, is Terror Train. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah, Terror Train is a fun movie. Yeah. And And you uh, can show that to your wife, because there's not that much gore, and there's a hell of a lot of atmosphere. And you would think a slasher on a train. Oh, God. But they use it. Great. No, Terror Train is a really fun movie. Um yeah, and uh, wasn't that um, trying to think? Uh, the guy who directed that, he got his start editing movies for Sam Peckinpah, right? He was an editor Roger on Sam Spotswood. Peckinpah. Yeah, Roger Spotswood. Yeah, yeah, he was the uh, yeah he was the editor. That's why on he a had Ben Johnson of, in the movie. What's that? That's why he is able to get Ben Johnson for it. Oh, right. Yeah. And what's funny yeah. is, who would you think would be the biggest star to come out of Terror Train? Jimmy Lee Curtis. No. Yeah, right. No. You would think. Oh, this little magician guy who was there, like, we need someone who can do magic tricks. Mm-hmm. They found this guy who was semi-popular, but really hadn't burst out as big as he was yet. And that would be 
David Copperfield. Yeah. Yep. Man, I think about David Copperfield from time to time because I remember when we were growing up, he was like the biggest, he was the most famous magician in the world. Like, he was huge. He was he was big well, time. He still is huge. I mean, the amount of money that he makes on uh, in his Vegas. Whoa. Yeah, well, how like I would like to have David Copperfield money. In hell in the eighties, I was like, I would like to get David Copperfield booty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. They're like, Bunch. yeah. We gotta mention what I consider the two worst films of nineteen eighty. One people agree with me and the other one well, I'm probably gonna get decapitated. And I'll take it. Uh Nate has no nothing to do with my opinion, so don't kill him. <laughs> oh and and for the people listening that are listening to it live, we're about to go into overtime in five minutes, but don't worry. Nay, we ain't got that much left. And uh, the worst slasher would be New Year's Eve. <laughs> oh. oh, that movie sucks. Yeah. And, and this is a movie, if you start trying to figure out how the hell the killer did this time zone thing, the way he, he, he tries to kill people in different time zones. If you try to figure yeah. out how he can pull it off, your brain will explode, like in scanners. Yeah, but it's uh, they, might, they might be able to pull off a remake of this nowadays in the era of cell phones, kind of like you know the Scream series. But yeah, the film in 1980 really doesn't make any sense unless the I guess the guy's a time traveler or I I don't fucking know. I agree with you completely. Yeah. This movie is horrible. And this <laughs> one you probably won't. Most fans of this will kill me. Kubrick fans will kill me. So I just say, kill me. Just go ahead, kill me now. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> and that is yeah. A piece of shit known as The Shining. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd make oh. sure my I'd make sure my doors and windows were locked before I go to bed tonight if I were you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. A, I, I am a Kubrick fan, but I'm not. I'm not like a slavish. Kubrick fan, you know. I like some of his movies. Some of his movies I don't really care for. And The Shining is okay. Um, I think he does a good job of creating the atmosphere. Like, I think about myself when I was a kid, and obviously we didn't live in a friggin' abandoned hotel or, you know, vacant hotel, but we did live in a big farmhouse when I was growing up and I was creeped out a lot of the time by weird, you know, closets and rooms that we never used and doors that were always closed. And so 
atmospherically, I appreciate what he was going for with all of that, but I also agree uh, with Stephen King's assessment that the the whole movie seems to just start out with uh, Jack Torrance, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson's character, just already being insane. And all he needs is a winter yeah, away I mean, from... from his first shot, you're like, this motherfucker's crazy. Where is he going to go? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And it doesn't really show... Anyone who's read the novel knows that it's a downward spiral from, you know... It, he's not insane at the beginning of the novel. He goes insane because of his time at at the hotel... And it's also, um, I mean, they don't I know even bring up the fact that he, in the movie that he's a recovering alcoholic. So that whole scene with Lloyd giving him a drink don't mean shit in the movie. Right. Yeah. And yeah, just the, I don't know. There are a couple of little asides in the film where people make comments and whatnot that, uh, kind of feed into the the quote unquote twist ending, but yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of times Kubrick goes for atmosphere over content. You know, like um, I feel that way about The Shining. I feel that way about Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, he really he excels. Um, Oh, uh, Barry Lydon is another one where atmosphere over content, you know. Um, I wish he had gone more, I wish he had leaned more towards like his full metal jacket kind of style. Um, You know, full metal jacket has an, it has atmosphere, but it also has some very uh, real visceral content to it that makes it feel like something even if it's not something that you've ever been through, I've never been in the military. I've never been to war, but I feel a very visceral connection to full metal jacket. Whereas my dad said it was spot on. (laughs) I think the scariest thing he said to me was, this is why you don't want to join the military. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And plus he let Arlie army take over for it. And Arlie army, was a boot camp. Yeah, right? No. But like I say, you know, even as a kid who grew up in a big farmhouse and was really spooked out by a lot of the elements of where I grew up, um, yeah, like watching The Shining, I I can relate to, you know, little Danny Torrance being alone in this gigantic, hotel and being spooked out by stuff but still I don't have even as a character that I can connect to in a situation that I can relate to I don't feel that visceral reaction like I do to like full metal jacket you know like we uh, said before we love our director but there's not many that can do it all yeah. Yeah, we've been through a 
We've been through enough episodes where we've talked about, well, I love this director, but this movie's just not at the top of the list. And yeah, I do. I I don't dislike it as much as you do. I am a fan of The Shining, but it's not the first movie I reach for when I when I'm looking for something to watch. That's for sure. And it's not even the first Kubrick movie I would reach for if I was looking for something to watch. Uh, yeah. It's not at the top of my list of Kubrick films at all. Nah. And moving on, we're going to the unseen. Sidney Lassick is just so fucking good in it. Yeah. And that's one of my great exploitation lines ever. Yeah. I said to myself, what kind of man would rape and beat the hell out of his sister? And immediately, you came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Stephen Hurst as the baby. Well, if you watch, we talked earlier, don't. If you watch Don't trailer, that baby in it, that... Uh, yeah. They use in there. That's from the unseen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, Edgar. Uh, well, Edgar Wright directed the fake trailer for Don't. Uh, oh, what what the heck is his name? I always hate myself when I can't remember. He was the other. He's he's Simon Pegg's partner there. They do all the movies together. Yeah. Dick Cross. Yes. Yeah, he's the one who plays the baby in the don't trailer. But yeah, that is definitely from uh yeah, from the unseen. Yep. Mhm. Yeah. That uh that movie is uh really bizarre, but um I don't know. It has it has a through line. Like you can follow the plot. It's not like it's it's not like it has a twist ending or anything. It's just a very bizarre movie from front to back. But I don't know. I I would agree that that was a good one. That was a good one from the eighties. Uh yeah. yeah. But like I said, once Sidney Lassick takes over and when he goes crazy during the last act of the movie and they actually show Stephen first as the crazy baby, then the movie comes alive. Yeah, it definitely kicks into high gear in the third act. That's for sure. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you and I know Sidney Lasik from, uh, from The Unseen, but anyone who is unfamiliar with her might know her from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think that's probably her best-known role. Her, Sidney, is a guy. He's the one who played uh, Jessic. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Sorry. I misspoke. Give me the breathalyzer. I've been drinking. <laughs> no, I think Abby's dosed your booze. <laughs> Abby you're going to start seeing me float through the air. You're going to start <laughs> seeing me float through the air with a unicorn on the, with my head on a unicorn about five or ten minutes. Abby was <laughs> the one who just making me talk about these crazy movies. 
Abby was the one who just yelled Nick Frost from the other room, so she's she's mm-hmm. on my side. She's she's not trying to get me more drunk. She's trying to help me make it through this friggin' podcast. Yeah, and would you believe that there was a period where Disney tried the first period where Disney tried to make adult films, but they pussied out. You had three. There was Something Wicked This Way Comes, which was freaking amazing. The Black Hole, which is not as good as it is. And then there's The Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. I don't know. Which is good, but Okay. No, I was just going to say, I like all three of those. Go ahead. Say say what you were going to say. The problem with Watcher in the Woods, and it's good, is they didn't know what the hell the Disney didn't know what they wanted. So that's why there's four endings out there. One that turns it into a UFO movie. One that's a dark ending, which has the main girl go away with the ghost. And the third, which is she gets away, but it's a mixture of the alien and the ghost thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting premise. I don't believe that I've ever seen all four of the endings of which you speak. Um, but... Yeah. You know the it, Anchor Bay it, DVD that goes for a shitload of money? That's the only place to see it is the two-disc Anchor Bay version, which has uh, all three of the endings. And it's right. muy bueno. No, muy dinero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah muy dinero. <laughs> uh, sorry, senor. No hablo inglés. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it yeah. goes for around eighty to a hundred dollars cheap. But yeah, you said. Um, I mean, well, we you were talking about the different adult films that Disney tried to make. The only thing I really remember about Watcher in the Woods um, was that didn't they yank it out of theaters like real quick because people thought they were going to see a Disney movie. And then, so they were bringing their kids to what they thought was, quote, unquote, what we would call a Disney movie, but it was actually a horror flick. So they they yanked that up. They yanked that movie out of the theaters real quick, right? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. If you remember, the Black Hole was dark as hell, too. Oh, I love Black Hole. I mean... It, it, yeah, yeah I, I'm I looking back behind me at my uh, Mecca, not the deluxe version of uh, Maximilian. I uh, the deluxe version I, actually has as a changeable head that creepy visual of it from the end of the movie that shows the uh, uh, basically Captain Nemo's head inside of Maximilian's head. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about stuff that's exorbitantly overpriced. I actually went on uh, eBay the other day trying to get some of the vintage uh, black hole action figures that I had when I was a kid, and holy shit, those are expensive. Like, 
Yeah, it's because no one bought them back then. The movie right? was a flop. People wanted Star Wars, and they got the black hole. But moving on, we're coming to the end. We have three films left. Yeah. The first is Windows of Talia Shire, which is the creepy one with the lesbian stalker, which people are like, Oh, my cruising is such a horrible anti-gay film. Have you seen Windows? No. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And this, this plot has been copied. This plot's been copied several times. I would say most notably, uh, you know, uh, oh, what's the friggin' movie with, Bridget Fonda, she gets the roommate who oh, becomes a single white female. Single white female, yeah, yeah. That um, I mean, it's not it's not an identical copy of this film, but I think this was no. definitely an inspiration. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, a woman becomes obsessed with her neighbor, and yeah, so. But this is a nasty, here, disgusting, homophobic film. <laughs> Let me get that yeah. out of the way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It shares a and lot with on, Miss 45. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, moving on, what was that film that Kevin Peter Hall played where he played an alien hunter from outer space that came down and was hunting humans? <laughs> I don't know. I need to be warned. Oh, no, I'm thinking Predator, which ripped off <laughs> without warning. <laughs> I knew where you were going with that. That's why I set you yeah. up for the punchline. Come on, man. Keep up. <laughs> yeah. Without warning is great. And I love those little sucker things that he uses as weapons. Yeah, they're kind of like they're kind of like jellyfish. Uh, some kind of like alien jellyfish or something. I, I don't know yeah. what they were supposed to be, but yeah. Yeah, if you, if, if you like Predator and you're a fan of 80s sci-fi and horror, you should definitely watch Without Warning. It's, it's, it's the movie... They they won't say it, but it's the movie that Predator was based on, for sure. Yeah. And, and Kevin Peter Hall got, played yeah. the monster in both. That's fun. Yeah. It's got Jack Palance, and everyone always loves Jack Palance, even though I feel the same way about him that I feel about <laughs> George C. Scott. I think he plays the same character in every movie, whether he's trying to or not. Um Oh, uh, who else is in Without no. Warning? Uh, oh, it's got Larry David Caruso. Who? Yeah, David Caruso. Oh. He plays one of the oh. teenage victims. Yeah, David Caruso, and like I said, Larry Storch from F Troop. If you're an F Troop fan, he does not play the same type of wacky character from F Troop, but he is in the film. Uh, yeah, and what's yeah. funny is this is. Uh, one of two films that Martin Landau and Jack Palance starred in back to back, and both of them I can recommend. Yeah, 
What was there? What the was other the other film? Alone in the Dark. Oh, yeah. I forgot that Jack Palance was in Alone in the Dark. I, to be fair, I haven't really watched that movie in like 20 years, but I always, that's one of oh, those movies know. I always, you know, I just always think of it as a Martin Landau movie. Yeah. And moving on to our last film of the week is a one we talked about last week, and it's Zombie Holocaust, aka Doctor Butcher MD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nineteen eighty was pretty packed. I mean, you had the boil over from the zombie thing. You had. People buying up every Lucho Fulci film they could and just throwing it out there. Between 80 and 82, you got uh, pretty much like five or six come out. And I have a copy of Zombie Holocaust, like you said, a.k.a. Dr. Butcher MD. I have it on DVD, and it actually has – you can change the – you can – take the gatefold out and turn it to whichever side you choose. So you can have it on your shelf as Dr. Butcher, or you can have it as zombie Holocaust. Uh, (laughs) I've got that too, but the Blu-ray, but I've got it as Dr. Butcher MD because that is one of the greatest fucking taglines ever. He's a deranged deranged homicidal necrophiliac. (laughs) And he makes house calls. <laughs> uh, and we did talk about this uh, when we were talking about this movie a, a few weeks ago. But, yeah, it definitely has the best uh, dummy getting thrown off of a roof scene in any horror movie ever. <laughs> and, yeah, and it has Wes Craven directed footage in it. Yeah, I, I, I did. Go ahead. No, I I was just gonna let you finish. I was gonna say I did I I never knew that until you brought it up when we were talking about it a few weeks ago. What happened was is that Wes Craven got involved with this student film. Tell me as a amateur filmmaker if this is not one of the greatest ideas you ever heard. That instead of teaching them film, he was the class was going to throw your ass it well it threw your ass out in the middle of the pool and say swim or drown he was going to actually give them actual well he actually gave the guys that worked there actual onset experience right yeah and the problem is is with these guys that didn't know how to shoot film, the money vanished pretty quick. And the footage was mm-hmm. left with, uh, who's that guy? Roy Fumpkis. And what two films would we know Roy Fumpkis from the most? I wouldn't know him from anything. <laughs> Document of the Dead. Oh, yeah. And street trash. Yeah. I don't recognize the but name, yeah. but I have a copy of 
I have a copy of Document of the Dead, and of course I've seen Street Trash. Yeah. He directed uh he directed both of those. Well, I learned something new again. Document of the Dead was Roy Pumpkiss's student project. His student yeah. thesis. That's why there's so much detail about financing and things like that. Right. Cool. And so they took the footage and they sold it to them and they used it at the front of uh, Dr. Butcher MD. The film was called Tales to Tell Your Heart Out. And if you have that special edition of Zombie Holocaust, Dr. Butcher MD, it actually has the intro and the footage, all of the yep. footage. Including the stuff they didn't use. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, these three years, I mean, really, it's weird seeing 1980s set up horror exploitation wise. 78, 79, and 80 pretty much set up the direction and where we went from there. Yeah, for sure. And I think we have. I think we've discussed it exhaustively over the last three weeks. And if anyone has any doubts that these were the decades or the the years rather that really paved the way for uh, modern horror, then, you know, obviously you haven't been paying attention because this is for real. Like we've, (laughs) we've discussed this exhaustively over the last three weeks. There are, there's the 78, 79 and 80 led us to where we are today for better or for worse. I mean that we can discuss that. Yeah, the peak of the war boom, the end of the zombie, well, pretty much the middle of the zombie boom. Right. Yeah. And the start yeah. of the slasher boom. If we yeah. really got in 81, 82, 83, the amount of slashers that came out just in those three years is just exhausting. And most of them were crap. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about product. <laughs> maybe we can talk about that next year because we got a lot of other stuff to talk about before the end of this year. So. Maybe we'll do a three-week run uh, of uh, 81, 82, 83 or something like that next year when the yeah. when the new year starts, you know. Well, next year, but, and next week, we're going to be watching the NUF, WNUF Halloween special. And it came out yeah. a couple of years ago, and it's one of the best found footage movies, but we're not watching because of that. We're watching it because it captures pitch perfect what it was like to get a mystery tape and just watch it all that with all the 80s commercials and things like that. And we'll really get into what a mystery tape is during the movie. And how during the early 90s we would go to flea markets and buy up those mystery tapes never knowing what we would get. That's going to be fun, and and I'm sure you and I both have some really good stories about what we've found on mystery tapes at flea markets over the years. <laughs> yeah, or just renting, period. Right. 
And with that, thank you again. And there will not be any shows for the rest of the week because I'm having a laparoscopy tomorrow. Yes, I'm getting another tube stuck down my throat. This year I'm getting more tubes stuck down my throat than an adult film who specializes in oral sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, good luck, buddy. I hope you uh I hope you uh hope everything turns out okay and I'll catch up with you online and uh we'll uh we'll catch up next week uh right here on the uh sexploitation conflagration. Or the C or the C C <laughs> Yeah, the C C C F. Yeah, the C C F. <laughs> hey, uh, I found a way to abbreviate it. Yes. <laughs> oh, you mean the C C F? Yeah. That will be the only thing I kick your ass if we ever met for <laughs> you know. You had to pick this fucking complicated fucking title motherfucker read well but trying to say I came up with the name when it was our blog when we didn't have to say it out loud every week. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to turn into a friggin' podcast that we were going to have to say it every week. <laughs> oh, shit. 